It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Stephanie St. Clair was only in her mid-20s, and she had already done well for herself. She strolled down Harlem with her signature head-turning style. It was the 1920s. She was running the neighborhood, and she looked the part. But today, that was about to change. St. Clair was suddenly stopped in her tracks when a police car rolled up on the curb. An officer jumped out and accosted her, threatening to arrest her. St. Clair stood tall, her high heels bringing her to nearly six feet. She wasn't intimidated by this small-time beat cop. She calmly informed him that she would need to see the evidence against her, however trumped up it may be. The officer scoffed and put her in the back of his squad car. St. Clair went willingly, sliding into the back seat with dignity. This trip might have been humiliating for other criminals, but St. Clair kept her head held high for the entire ride, as if this squad car was her personal chariot. She knew what was happening. It was time to start cutting the cops in on her profits. Stephanie St. Clair was being arrested for running a policy bank. In today's terms, she ran her own independent lottery. Her operation collected bets throughout Harlem, and she controlled the payouts. But in her mind, she wasn't being taken to jail for breaking the law. She was going downtown to conduct business. She pulled out her compact mirror and checked her reflection in it. She looked cool as a cucumber. I'm Howell Hargett. And I'm Kate Leonard. And this is Kingpins, a ParCast original. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power changed them and how it changed the community around them. You can find episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To listen to Kingpins for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Kingpins in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. This is our first episode on 1920s policy banker and community activist Stephanie St. Clair. She was one of the only women running a numbers racket in Harlem throughout the 1920s, and it was extremely profitable. This week, we'll explore St. Clair's beginnings, 
how an immigrant from the French West Indies started a policy bank with just $10,000. Eventually, she would use the profits to improve her community in Harlem and fight for racial justice. But her success began to draw the wrong kind of attention. Next week, we'll cover how St. Clair fought off syndicate aggression and even landed some gangsters and corrupt cops in jail. By the mid-1920s, Stephanie St. Clair needed no introduction. She was just known. Known in Manhattan as the Queen or Queenie, and in Harlem, more respectfully, as Madame St. Clair or Madame Queen. She lived at 409 Edgecombe Avenue in a high-end apartment building on Sugar Hill, one of Harlem's most fashionable neighborhoods. Other notable residents of Edgecombe Ave included W.E.B. Du Bois, a groundbreaking black intellectual and activist, and Thurgood Marshall, the man who would become the first black Supreme Court justice. The building was written up in the 1968 book Harlem Negro Metropolis and was described as, quote, number 409 Edgecombe Avenue is the best known building in Sugar Hill. It has something of the atmosphere of a European resort hotel. St. Clair's impeccable, chic appearance was her calling card. She always wore the latest fashions tailored to fit her five foot nine inch frame. All her garments were made with the finest silks and furs. Her hair was intricately styled and topped with some kind of unforgettable hat. And she was never without her timeless string of pearls. One of St. Clair's neighbors remembers that she had a mystical aura about her, and she wore exotic dresses with a colorful turban wrapped around her head. St. Clair's striking appearance was indicative of her persona. She meant for everything about her to be unforgettable and powerful. She was a fearless and focused leader who never buckled under pressure. In fact, pressure made her perform her best. Her unflappable demeanor, mixed with a dash of violent temper, kept the loyalty of all her customers, as well as those who worked under her. The gamblers trusted St. Clair to pay out their winnings on time, and her employees knew they could depend on her to pay fair wages. And all that trust paid off. At the peak of her business, St. Clair employed more than 40 runners and 10 accountants and comptrollers. Her personal worth was over $500,000. Adjusted for today's inflation, that's around $7 million. St. Clair's confidence and ambition quickly made her policy bank successful. Besides her flair and loyalty, she was known for her bold business moves, like turning an arrest into a business deal with the cops. The squad car delivered St. Clair to the 123rd Street Police Station. St. Clair snapped her compact shut and stepped out of the car. The officer escorted the young woman into the station with all the dirty, petty criminals. Knowing she didn't belong with the riffraff, St. Clair insisted on speaking with the sergeant directly. She had something to offer. Even though she was the one who broke the law, she was still making the demands. St. Clair was shown to the sergeant's office and given a seat. St. Clair was able to read him like a book. 
it wasn't even going to be a fair fight. Before the sergeant could even attempt to charge her for running a numbers racket, St. Clair paid the lawman a compliment. She hadn't realized her little policy bank was big enough to attract the attention of the powerful NYPD. It was an honor to have their interest, and she'd be happy to pay them for their trouble. St. Clair made a polite but direct offer. She'd cut the sergeant into her business. In exchange, the sergeant would keep the law off her back. Her plan worked. The sergeant accepted the offer of graft payments, or ICE, as they were known at the time. Every week, St. Clair would have several hundred dollars delivered to the station by one of her messengers. St. Clair's deal with the sergeant was revolutionary. Every other policy bank in Harlem had similar agreements. She probably knew she'd have to bribe the police at some point. But instead of proactively setting up a graft arrangement, she waited for the cops to make the first move, saving her money in the meantime. What took guts was letting the cops arrest her and going without a fight. But for her, it was just another day of business. She knew how to deal with authorities. She'd been doing it since she was a child. And many historians think that's exactly how she managed to enter the United States. Stephanie St. Clair was born on December 24, 1897, in Guadeloupe, a French-colonized archipelago in the Caribbean. St. Clair was born 50 years after her enslaved ancestors were emancipated, but the history of slavery still factored into her identity. St. Clair's ancestors were documented by their captors as being unruly and uncooperative from the time of their capture on the shores of Africa until emancipation they actively rebelled against their enslavement. The instinct to rebel against injustice ran through the family bloodline. St. Clair's mother was dedicated to social causes like supporting single mothers in Guadeloupe. She also saw that her daughter learned to read and write in English and French, useful and unusual abilities for a girl at the time. St. Clair needed to call on those skills earlier than anyone expected. When she was only 11, her father passed away from unknown causes. Without her father providing for her family, St. Clair's dowry was diminished, limiting her options for marriage. And as a girl, she had no hope of inheriting any of her family's property. Suddenly, her options for personal freedom were fading away. But her mother and ancestors had shown her that she didn't have to accept life's hard knocks. She could fight back. If options were limited in Guadeloupe, St. Clair would move to a place with more opportunity, even if she had to go it alone. Guadeloupe was home to an underground industry funneling French-speaking young women into domestic positions in the U.S. and Canada. Agents in Guadeloupe, nothing more than pushy hucksters, would connect wealthy North American families with willing young women usually collecting payment from both sides. St. Clair's first exposure to an illegal hustle was when she herself was being hustled, but she learned fast. St. Clair left Guadeloupe on the SS Guiana in July of 1911. She was only 13, but her entry into the ship's passenger manifest lists her age as 23. 
No 13-year-old would have been allowed to travel alone in those days, so the agents had falsified her age to get her on board. St. Clair was already being taught to bend the rules to get what she wanted. Of course, 13-year-olds were banned from solo travel for a reason. The trip from Guadalupe to New York lasted about 20 days. As a steerage traveler, St. Clair spent most of the trip on the deck with only a blanket between her and the wildness of the Atlantic Ocean. It was likely a harrowing, miserable journey, but she arrived safely on July 31st, 1911. From New York, St. Clair made her way to Canada to work as a domestic. We don't know much about her in Canada or the specifics of the arrangement. There are reports that she was mistreated, sexually assaulted, or even trafficked as a child prostitute. However, there's no documentation to support these claims. The next event in St. Clair's life that can be corroborated is her return to New York. That trip is indicated by her marriage license, dated 1915. Not yet 18, she married elevator operator George Gashett at St. Benedict the Moor Catholic Church in New York City. At least that's what her marriage certificate says. Everything on the document is suspect because other information, like St. Clair's name and birthplace, are incorrect. George's residence is also listed as unknown. It's likely that St. Clair chose to use a false name and birthplace because she was afraid of deportation. She probably returned to America from Canada illegally. Biographer Shirley Stewart describes the information on the marriage certificate as just wrong enough to prevent any links between official documents. We may not be able to trust the official records, but we can draw some conjectures on what they say about St. Clair. The false information suggests that she was comfortable manipulating the facts to get what she wanted, in this case, to get married. That disregard for authority was prophetic of her future criminal career. The details of St. Clair's married life are just as hazy as the marriage certificate itself. There is some evidence to suggest that she was pregnant during the wedding, but there's no mention of her ever having children. And her husband George disappears from the record entirely after their marriage. However, there is a highly entertaining but unsubstantiated anecdote that could explain the end of their relationship. Legend has it that during her early 20s, St. Clair was involved with a man who went by Duke, who may or may not have been her husband. Duke tried to force St. Clair into sex work. She responded by stabbing him in the eye with a fork. Besides not knowing anything about her marriage to George, we also don't know how St. Clair made her living in New York between 1915 and 1923. Some sources say that she worked as a drug dealer or bookkeeper. St. Clair herself would later claim that she'd been a dressmaker. Perhaps she played the numbers as well, and maybe even won a jackpot, because in 1923, when she was only 26, she had $10,000 in her pocket. That money would bring her wealth beyond her wildest dreams. And it would make her a target for the rest of her life. 
Up next, St. Clair takes $10,000 and turns it into one of the biggest, most profitable numbers rackets in Harlem. Now, back to the story. After immigrating to New York in 1911 at age 13, Stephanie St. Clair established herself on the policy banking scene. By age 26, she had $10,000 in her pocket. We don't know exactly how she raised that cash, but what we do know was that she used the 10 grand as seed money for her own entrepreneurial venture. It was called something different depending on who you asked. Proprietors said they owned a policy bank. Law enforcement called it a numbers racket. Today, we'd recognize it as a lottery. Whatever you call it, by 1923, her bank was up and running. Playing the numbers was a widespread habit in Harlem during the 1920s. For bets as little as a few pennies, players could see payouts as high as a few hundred dollars. For poor families in Harlem, that money was life-changing. On any given morning, St. Clair's lookouts could be found on street corners outside every gathering place in Harlem. The lookouts kept their eyes peeled for cops. Inside the beauty parlors, pool halls, bars, drugstores, dry cleaners, and diners, runners collected their bets. Some runners went door-to-door in apartment buildings or went directly to the homes of their more wealthy clients. Each runner covered a specific piece of territory, the borders of which were carefully negotiated among the neighborhood's policy bank owners. The bets of the day were a topic of interest for all Harlem residents, regardless of nationality, age, social class, and economic standing. Everyone from priests to grifters to grandmothers discussed their strategy for picking numbers. Some were methodical, changing a single digit daily. Some were more spiritual, letting the winning numbers come to them in a dream. Some were creatures of habit who picked the same digits every day. Unlike a regular lottery, where numbers are chosen by a randomized process, each policy bank collected bets on a certain set of widely publicized numbers. For example, it could be three digits taken from the New York Stock Exchange at closing or specific racetrack results. The runner would take down the player's name, the date, their chosen numbers, and the amount of their bet, and collect the money. Some runners would write the numbers down on a newspaper instead, so if they were stopped by police, they wouldn't have an obvious policy book with them. After the runners had covered their territory and collected bets from all their regular customers, they would return to the policy bank. There, the day's take would be calculated by a team of comptrollers supervised by St. Clair herself. There were no calculators at the time, only basic adding machines to tabulate the thousands of coins a day. Bets would come in until the evening papers were published with the winning numbers. Any payouts for winning guesses would be set aside, and then the house take for the day would be added up. The lookouts, runners, and accountants would all be paid a percentage of the proceeds, which was a great way to ensure every team member was invested in the business. It must have been a good motivator. St. Clair's policy bank took in thousands of dollars every day, seven days a week. 
With so much money flying around, St. Clair had to ensure the safety of her runners. If any of them were robbed, it was like the thief was reaching directly in St. Clair's own pocket. She couldn't have that. She needed protection. For that, St. Clair enlisted the services of an up-and-coming enforcer named Ellsworth Raymond Johnson, better known to history as Bumpy Johnson. When Bumpy got involved with St. Clair, he looked and operated a lot like his white gangster counterparts out of Manhattan. He was never seen wearing anything less than a finely pressed tailored suit with a matching hat, and he loved flashing wads of cash. Of course, beneath his notched lapels, he always carried a knife and a gun, and he was adept at using both. Bumpy joined St. Clair's operation sometime in the mid-1920s. Some sources say that she hired him as her personal bodyguard, and he escorted her everywhere. Some even speculate that their relationship extended to the bedroom. But this was never confirmed by either party. Within just a few years, St. Clair had risen incredibly fast, and she was pulling in big money. With Bumpy around for protection and local law enforcement on the take, things were going swimmingly. It was time for St. Clair to enjoy her profits and live up the Roaring Twenties. St. Clair knew how to spend money. She always had tailored clothes and lived in the most fashionable neighborhood in Harlem. But she didn't forget what her mother had taught her, to take care of her community. Her policy bank, and most other policy banks at the time, lifted up the Harlem community in a simple yet significant way. Apart from the numbers rackets, many of them also served as traditional banks, extending loans and financing to local residents. In the mid-1920s, it was nearly impossible for a black person to get a loan from a white-operated bank. Of course, virtually all banks at the time were owned and operated by white people. The capital collected by policy banks allowed them to fill that gap. They financed Harlem residence houses, commercial real estate, and other large transactions, which otherwise would have been impossible. Thanks to St. Clair, more local businesses and housing in Harlem were owned by the black residents. The money being spent in the community stayed in the community, rather than going into the pockets of outside landlords and corporations. But St. Clair helped the locals with more than their banking. She also became a patron of the arts. Thanks in part to her support, black artists, intellectuals, and activists began to flourish in Harlem. Today, we call this period the Harlem Renaissance. Many of us think of famous artists and thinkers like W.E.B. Du Bois, Jacob Lawrence, and Langston Hughes when we think about the Harlem Renaissance. But the most significant piece of the movement for St. Clair was the rise of black activism and unity. She would remain committed to activist work for the rest of her life. During this period, she also co-founded the French Legal Aid Society, which helped French-speaking immigrants from the Caribbean find work, learn English, and become citizens. It's possible St. Clair received that same assistance or something similar when she arrived in New York a decade earlier. 
Or perhaps she wanted to make sure that no young girl had to arrive from the Caribbean with no support the way she did. The other issue St. Clair focused on was significant to every member of her race, voting rights. She wanted to make sure that every black voice was heard. She wrote informative missives on the subject and paid to have them published in newspapers, usually Harlem's Amsterdam News. St. Clair's editorials, though they were published in the advertisement section, were usually addressed to the members of my race. She used the space to tell other residents of Harlem how they could get registered to vote, where the polling places were, and what to do if they were prevented from voting. As St. Clair's generosity increased, so too did her notoriety. She probably enjoyed the exposure, hearing the boys call out Madam Queen as she walked down the street. However, that attention would change the Harlem policy banking business forever. By 1928, there were over 30 policy banks operating in Harlem. On the surface, the rackets looked small-time. Runners moved through neighborhoods, collecting pennies, nickels, and dimes. But all that money added up. As policy bankers began flexing their wealth, Italian, Irish, and Jewish gangsters felt the ripple of new power in town. Up to this point, the syndicate had ignored Harlem policy banks, assuming the profit margins were too small for them to even bother with. But something made the mobsters realize that there was more money running through Harlem than they thought, and they wanted a cut. In September of 1928, prominent Harlem policy banker Casper Holstein was living large. Businesses were booming but his luck was about to change. He was strolling a New York street on a Friday morning when he was suddenly surrounded by five unidentified white men, hostile white men. They claimed they were police officers. However, given that the cops were on Holstein's payroll, his gut told him they were lying. Holstein was outmanned and outgunned. When he was told to get into the car, he went willingly. The unidentified kidnappers called Holstein's associates and demanded a $50,000 ransom. Word had gotten out about what a policy banker was worth, and the mobsters were going to squeeze it out of them. Holstein was released three days later, despite his claims that the ransom was never paid. When Stephanie St. Clair learned about Holstein's kidnapping, the news rocked her to the core. Even though the two of them were occasionally rivals, she knew that this kidnapping was a bad sign for everyone in Harlem. She didn't know exactly who kidnapped Holstein, but she had a pretty good guess. Harlem's time of peace was about to come to a very abrupt end. Up next, the white New York mob comes to Harlem. But St. Clair isn't going down without a fight. Now, back to the story. In 1928, 30-year-old Stephanie St. Clair was the head of a successful Harlem policy bank. For years, she and her fellow bankers raked in the dough in relative peace. But all of that changed in September 1928, 
when prominent policy banker Casper Holstein was kidnapped by a group of white gangsters and held for ransom. The Harlem numbers racket was now in the crosshairs of the New York crime syndicate. If Stephanie St. Clair wanted to maintain control of her neighborhood, she had to stand up to the entire New York mob. The identities of Casper Holstein's kidnappers have been lost to history. But whether or not the $50,000 ransom was paid, the white gangsters knew the massive profits in Harlem were more than just a myth. The idea of taking over the neighborhood seemed appealing. And a clear frontrunner to pull such a move was 26-year-old Arthur Simon Flegenheimer, better known as Dutch Schultz. Dutch Schultz was a Jewish gangster who had made his fortune in bootlegging, mainly throughout Upper Manhattan, the Bronx, and Harlem. His massive illegal brewery earned him the nickname the Beer Baron. Schultz had a reputation as a fierce gunman who used intimidation and violence to get his way. Up to this point, the Harlem policy bankers were a nonviolent enterprise. To Schultz, that made them an even more attractive target. He knew he wouldn't have to worry about anyone firing back at him. Schultz had another advantage that policy bankers couldn't hope to compete with. He had a strong grip on New York law enforcement and politicians. He even had the infamous James J. Hines in his pocket. Hines was a politician that controlled West Harlem and had the ear of New York City's mayor. Schultz was cunning. He didn't run into Harlem guns blazing. Instead, he used his political clout to make the cops do his dirty work for him. In the fall of 1928, St. Clair's runners and lookouts found that police officers they'd paid off were suddenly harassing them, questioning them, and even arresting them. And with the cops running around, customers weren't nearly as willing to make bets. St. Clair was in a sudden bind. In just a matter of weeks, Schultz's takeover had begun. Amidst the chaos, St. Clair called all the Harlem policy bankers to a meeting. She knew that solidarity was the only way to fight back against the reign of terror Dutch Schultz was about to unleash. She laid out a plan. They should pool their money and buy protection. Schultz had men with guns, and they should too. Then they should target a few select politicians who could be bent to their cause. But the other policy bankers weren't so sure they wanted to take part in the fight. Schultz was a formidable foe, and none of them were willing to risk their lives. Perhaps it would be easier to simply fold and work with Schultz. St. Clair was beside herself. She emasculated the other bankers, all of whom were men, calling them weak sissies for refusing to stand with her. Just like her ancestors, St. Clair knew that she and the other policy bankers had justice on their side. They may have been operating outside the law, but the money they earned was rightfully theirs. But the rallying cries fell on deaf ears. She failed to get the rest of the policy bankers to stand behind her. If she was going to face Schultz, 
it was going to be on her own. Thankfully, she still had her right-hand man, Bumpy Johnson. And unlike the policy bankers, Bumpy was familiar with a fight. In fact, he was hungry for war. Like so many black men and women, he resented the discrimination he had to live with every day. Dutch Schultz's attempt to steal the success they had cultivated in Harlem was one step too far. In Bumpy's own words, sure, I'm a thief and a pimp and a hood. What would you have me do? Go down to Grand Central Station and carry bags for dimes? Or go back to Africa and take my pants off and run around in the jungle? Lucky Luciano can live at the Waldorf, but it don't matter how much money I got. I can't walk in there and get me a room. Bumpy was ready to put his life on the line to protect Harlem from the white gangsters. He would prove to be St. Clair's most loyal and useful ally. But before the shooting even started, Dutch Schultz threw a curveball. He hired a black Harlem gangster of his own. Bub Hewlett had been a fixture in Harlem for some time, mostly running protection rackets. He had actually mentored Bumpy early in his career. Schultz approached Hewlett and offered him $600 a week to help him take over the Harlem numbers racket. Today, that's worth nearly $9,000 a week. The money was too good to turn down. One of the first things Hewlett did was pay St. Clara visit. He advised her to cut Schultz into her business. St. Clair was livid. Not only did she refuse Hewlett's advice, she told him he was no longer welcome in her home or her businesses. Hewlett and Bumpy maintained a less contentious relationship, but they both had to keep it on the down low. The people they served, St. Clair and Schultz, were now officially at war. For the rest of 1928, Schultz kicked things up onto another level. Any policy bankers who operated without giving him a cut would no longer be tolerated. St. Clair tried to keep her few allies standing strong, but Schultz easily shattered their resolve. It was a bloodbath. Hewlett was on the front lines, proving especially ruthless. He personally made sure Schultz's new regime was being implemented and viciously beat anyone who tried to resist. Bumpy held his own as best he could, using the neighborhood to his advantage. His wife, Mamie Hatcher Johnson, wrote, Bumpy and his crew of nine waged a guerrilla war of sorts, and picking off Dutch Schultz's men was easy since there were few other white men walking around Harlem during the day. But no amount of guerrilla tactics could stop Schultz. Runners disappeared from their roots. Policy bankers stopped showing up at their offices, leaving their employees to fend for themselves. Over the course of just a few months, more than 40 murders and six kidnappings were attributed to the policy gambling disputes. With the police under Schultz's thumb, there was nowhere to turn for protection the entire neighborhood of Harlem lived in a state of terror. By the end of 1928, about half of the Harlem policy banks had shuttered. Most of the banks still running were operating under Schultz's control. 
he quickly earned a new nickname, the King of the Harlem Bankers. One runner at the time said, you worked for Schultz or you didn't work at all. It was a dire situation for Stephanie St. Clair, but she refused to roll over and let Schultz win. She was staying in the fight and it would be legendary. One woman against the entire New York mob. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. Join us next week to watch Stephanie St. Clair face off with Dutch Schultz and his powerful friends in the New York Syndicate. You can find more episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Juan Borda with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Paul Mahler. This episode of Kingpins was written by Hannah McIntosh, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett.